Welcome to the Brand Design Masters podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build the skills you need to design bulletproof brands for yourself, your business, and for the clients and customers you serve. And now, here's Philip. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Brand Design Masters podcast. Today, I am so excited because I am here with Michelle Ronson. Michelle is a professionally trained graphic designer and design strategist who originally learned the ropes at Pentagram, woo, and Michael Osborne Design. Michelle served as a graduate faculty member at the Academy of Art University of Design in San Francisco and also UC Berkeley. She served as a senior vice president and creative director at at Wells Fargo and the Bank of America. She also teaches design thinking and user research at General Assembly in San Francisco. And most recently, Michelle is the founder of Curiosity Tank, which is a consulting and education firm that specializes in human-centered research, design development, and hands-on learning programs. Michelle and I first met at the Business Perspectives for Creative Leaders program put on by the AIGA at Harvard University ages ago and have been colleagues and friends ever since. And with that, I'd like to welcome Michelle. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So why don't you just share something about yourself, Michelle, and let people get to know you a little bit? Sure. Uh, I love questions. So um, I teach people now around the world how to ask better questions in order to make more informed decisions. Um, Most of my time is spent building research plans, conducting research, um, and helping teams understand um, either their customers better or their potential audiences or what they should build or if they're building the right thing or if they're building the thing right to two very different questions. Are we building the right thing versus building the thing right? Um, Whether they should implement a new product or service or sunset one, um, how people interpret or comprehend something or not, um, what they prefer and why and um, helping people and large teams and entrepreneurs make more informed decisions. And it's just great. I, I feel like I won the career jackpot. Well, you've had like five career jackpots, it seems like. I mean, I talk a lot about careers, great careers being more like webs than ladders. And I see in your career very much of a web. You've made some significant pivots in your career. You started off as a graphic designer at Pentagram and Michael Osborne, two amazing shops. You became a teacher and then you were a a senior vice president at creative director at a couple banking and financial institutions. Then you went back to teaching and developed some stuff. Um, And now you've started your own consulting firm. So why don't you talk a little bit about kind of that journey and those pivots in there? And those are kind of some interesting changes, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, I um, I graduated from the Academy of Art with a Bachelor um, of Fine Arts in Design, as, as you mentioned. And that summer after I graduated with that BFA, um, I taught in the high school experience program, which is basically a high school program for high school kids in the summer. And I just, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with teaching. That was my first foray. And I really haven't stopped since. I think I learned very early on that the more I taught, the better practitioner I became. And the more I practiced and the more I I managed people, 
the better teacher I became. So it was a very reciprocal relationship for me. So education has just always been a part of, um, of my, of my life, of my career and my own professional development. Um, so, uh, back in those days, it was traditional graphic design. I was doing a lot of packaging. I was, um, also on the Nordstrom innovation team and I developed, um, uh, different lines of cosmetics for them. Um, and I learned all about banking and finance and how much things cost and markups and markdowns and um, uh, how loans work and what a FICO score is and purchasing decisions and mental models around people and their money. Mm. And eventually um, that took me into real estate. Um, where I purchased my 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 first home, and then I designed it and gutted it and excavated and added a different unit, and then I became really interested in how people move through physical spaces. I should probably note that my mother is a designer, my father studied architecture, and I was tortured as a child. <laughs> Taking <laughs> me all these different ways, but it, at least in in my case, I really am a product of my environment. You know, do what you love, and the rest will follow. And and as these new and interesting creative challenges came, I was able to create my own path to to explore them. And then from real estate came store design, and then from store design, I went into product design, and then from product design you know, that really opened my eyes, um, into research. So it has been a web and I'm, I'm proud of that web. It's been really fun to weave. So you are now, you know, a user research expert on so many different levels. You teach it, you consult doing it with large tech companies. And so where did that user research interest? I mean, you mentioned when you were in finance that you were, you were working with or came to be aware of mental models of people's, you know, motivation to do things, particularly around money, which is, you know, a heavy motivation for people and very emotional decisions. So is that where the whole interest in, in the user research came in or where did that, where did that filter into your development? You know, that's a, it's a good question. I don't remember exactly where it started, but I remember very clearly um, first of all, I had been working with researchers um, for years at that point, but it was when I was at Wells Fargo and I went back to school at the California College of the Arts, actually. And I was in a design fellowship program, which is basically the, the precursor to their DMBA program. Explain what a DMBA is. A, a design MBA. So instead of like a business MBA, it's um, focused more on design thinking and design strategy and using design to solve business problems. Um, so in the fellowship program, there were 22 fellows and we each worked on one, uh, capstone project throughout the duration of our fellowship. And every month we met in person for an extended long weekend and there were different experts that came in and it came time for the focus on user research. And I literally raised my hand and I was like, who wants to trade? (laughs) So not interested in doing this. Oh, you weren't interested. I thought you were saying you wanted it. No, you were like out. I'm out. You're this or that. Tap out. And, um, and, and it wasn't that I didn't value research. I mean, I had, again, I'd been working with researchers for 10 years at that point and totally, but I didn't want to ask the questions. I mean, surely somebody else could get something more out of this experience. And I raised my hand and I was like, who wants to trade? 
And I'll never forget my, uh, my professor at the time said, no, Michelle, you're going to walk this plank yourself. Those were the exact words. And I was like, oh, bye. Anyway, fast forward. And I conducted um, five ethnographies that weekend. And an ethnography is um, a research study that originates um, from anthropology, actually, where you go and immerse yourself into the culture in which you're studying. And um, I, yeah, and, and there's a number of activities that go along with it. So I conducted five ethnographies and that was it. I was like Alice in Wonderland, like falling through the rabbit hole. <laughs> and Monday morning, I was like, that's it. That's my next chapter. Hearing people's feedback, like directly, was so profound to me. It was so eye-opening. I mean, you could have just knocked me over with a feather. I was like, I could have saved years off of my life if I had understood the power of hearing this firsthand. Mm. I mean, when I, I obviously was did a lot of consumer package goods too in our agency days and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time in focus groups and looking behind the one-way mirror and listening to feedback on people's, you know, thoughts about design and what that meant to them. And I think that that's one of the things that kind of drew me deeply into strategy was that how how people can be influenced by design. And if you design in a very strategic way, you can eventually, you know, kind of really get them to either do what you want them to do or buy what you want them to buy. And um, it's just, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing when you kind of learn about those emotional and psychological triggers and where they come from through semiotics and things of that nature. Absolutely. A lot of my audience are creative professionals, and one of the things that they do when they work with clients is they do, you know, competitive audits, and they're looking at their client's business category, or they're developing customer avatar profiles. And, you know, developing customer avatars, unless you do really deep user research or or focus groups, is kind of an inexact science. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on that, or if you had any insights for creative pro- professionals on how they could develop, um, you know, tricks of the trade that they could use to develop uh, customer avatars. I do. I have three suggestions. The first is, I think even a lot of researchers get mixed up when they don't have an agreed upon understanding of what they're looking to learn. Mm. And I always start every class, every project I work on, every consulting engagement is what are we looking to learn and really getting very, very concrete on that and and making sure I'm in complete lockstep with my stakeholders. And then what could be either attitudinal or could be behavioral? So which one or both are we really trying to unpack? So attitudes, for instance, are we looking to understand how someone thinks about something or what their stance is towards something or someone, right? Or another attitudinal um, uh, trait to explore might be where they're influenced, from or where the influence came from or who they're influenced by or what experiences are contributing to those values or to those preferences. Um, are they primarily positive? Are they primarily negative? Um, and what is 
sort of the, the perception that they have according to something. And I think that newer practitioners often don't really unpack that. Are we looking to learn about attitudes or are we looking to learn about behaviors or both? And, and that's fine. And there's no right or wrong. It should all tie into like, what are we looking to understand? And then, you know, how will the learnings be applied? In contrast, behaviors are physical actions, right? They're how someone conducts themselves. They're what they read or subscribes to. It's, um, it's um, the, their responses. You know, maybe it's a physical response or a nervous response. Behaviors um, can be innate. They can be learned. Um, but, and they could also reflect in someone's character and attitudes, right? So the first suggestion is get crystal clear on what you're looking to understand. Say uh, they're working with a client who's in a particular industry, you know, I don't know what industry, let's say restaurants, right? Food. And they needed to understand a restaurant's customer avatar. So who wanted, should, or wanted, would want to go to that restaurant or what, you know, apart from feeling hungry, what their need was in terms of that particular restaurant. Can they learn about the customer without actually questioning customers themselves? Or is that the best way to go about it? There's no substitute for primary research, but secondary research is a great place to start. So I would probably make a list of the attributes of that particular restaurant. Is it quick serve? Is it expensive? Um, Do they offer special dietary needs? Is it family friendly? Um, are they open late night, right? So I would probably do like a super quick intake and come up with some assumed attitudes or behaviors. And then it maybe do some research to confirm or disprove that. So it might appear to be very family friendly, but in reality, families don't come there. Why? Maybe after digging for a little bit, because they don't offer child-friendly food or they only have two high chairs or, I mean, it's not, it's not in like a family part of town. I don't know what, but what I would do is probably come up with a brainstorm, a list of attitudes and behaviors, and then look to disprove or disprove that. And I could do that in a variety of ways with existing data. I could probably interview some of the wait staff. I could probably um, maybe do some primary research just by sitting in the restaurant and observing who is coming and going at certain times of day. And does that vary, you know, Tuesdays at lunchtime from Friday night at 10, you know, what's that, what's that swing? Um, But research typically doesn't mean starting from scratch and secondary research is a great place to start too. So I would probably, if this is an established restaurant, I'd probably also comb through restaurant reviews from customers, you know, on like Yelp or open table or something like that, or maybe on something like some travel sites like four doors or um, TripUp, TripAdvisor, one of those types of places. And I could probably get, you know, a better sense there. Um, And using that as a starting point. Now, if they've ever been reviewed anywhere, um, like in Zagat's or Zagat's, or here in the Bay Area, they do a report on the top 100 restaurants every year. 
in uh, in the San Francisco Chronicle. I could use secondary research to substantiate it. Let me pause there. There's probably a lot. <laughs> no, that was that was really awesome. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that way when you said interview the wait staff. I mean, I totally got that in terms of discovering or or getting the information out of the the client side itself, stakeholder interviews, right? This episode of the Brand Design Masters podcast is sponsored by Bring Your Own Laptop. BYOL.me is a top-tier Adobe application video training website featuring Daniel Scott. Daniel's a certified Adobe trainer and keynote speaker at the Adobe Max conference every year. At BYOL.me forward slash Philip, you can learn everything from the basics to advanced aspects of your favorite Adobe applications, all for one low monthly subscription fee. Visit BYOL.me forward slash Philip, P-H-I-L-I-P. Again, that's BYOL.me forward slash Philip. I just know you're going to be amazed at Bring Your Own Laptops courses. In terms of when you have to create a profile of a particular user avatar or customer avatar, and say you have to create that you know that avatar profile for one of your your clients, one of your user research clients. What's the format of that look like for you? Um, we we would call it either a persona or an archetype. Okay. okay. Um, and typically the way I like to approach it is with something called empathy mapping and an empathy map is a visualization that articulates what we know about a particular type of person or user or customer or driver or diner or whatever we want to call them. And it organizes this into four quadrants, um, what they say, what they feel, what they think and what they do. And what they say are usually things that are articulated. So let's take, let's run with this restaurant example. So people say, um, can you make that pizza free, gluten-free and have it delivered in 20 minutes? Right. So we know that there's a specialty diet need and there's a speed issue. Mm -hmm. Right. But if we speak with enough people or we go through enough of these previous customer requests and conversations, we're probably able to come up with a, a, a good, healthy, you know, 10 or 15 kind of quotes, if you will, about things that they articulated, which would give us a great um, idea of what they say. You know, I love the ravioli, but it's a little too garlicky for my my little one. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, the next quadrant, think, is really about how they think throughout the experience. Are they thinking that the environment is pleasant? Are they thinking that the environment is too bright or not well lit enough? Are they thinking that the food is taking too long or the wine list isn't extensive enough? Right? How are they thinking about the experience? And feeling. We typically use adjectives here. So are, am I feeling nervous that my child won't eat the dinner that I ordered? Am I feeling excited to try a new special? Am I feeling confused about what sides come with my dish? Am I feeling um, full? You mm. know, because I perhaps 
started at the bar and now I'm at the table and I actually had my liquid dinner. I don't know if this makes sense. And then the last bucket will be do, right? So we have think, feel, say, and do. And the do would be the actions that they take, right? The behaviors, the, the, their, their physical responses. And by noting that, like, are they sitting forward on the table? Are they, are they close to one another? Right? Are they whispering? Or is it maybe like a sports bar and they're yelling or, you know, responding to a very interactive environment? Maybe the food is really loud and they're singing. Or are they um, taking the candle on the table and holding it close to the menu because they're having difficulty reading the menu in the soft light? So, what are they physically doing? Mm. And by thinking about the customers in these kind of four quadrants, we're able to ascertain a a good portion of, um, by the way, these can be done for individual people or like groups of people, like segments of people. Um, What do we know and what do we not know, right? Where are the gaps, and that then can inform, you know, further research or further conversation. So, forth. so talk about research a little bit. And some people listening may not completely understand what re- user research is. What kinds of user research are they and how do they how do they take place? Like if you wanted to do some consumer research into your restaurant, how what are the different ways of going about that? Sure. So first thing I would want to know is, um, does something exist? right? Is this an existing restaurant or is this an idea for a restaurant? And where we are in the product or service development cycle will inform what types of research we're going to do. If we're at the very, very beginning conceptual stages, we're probably going to do something along the lines of what we refer to as generative research or discovery research or foundational research. And this falls into the category that I refer to as what should we build? Right. And then as we're exploring that and we can use different types of qualitative research to explore that, as well as secondary research, we could find out what gaps exist or what else is performing very well in the area um, or what new trends are coming up um, to be able to you know, fill fill those gaps. Um And if we already maybe have a concept as we move through the product development cycle, then we're going to move into more of what we refer to as evaluative research, where something has taken shape in a form enough that somebody something has something to evaluate. Might be a storyboard or a concept board or a menu or a mood board, Um, or maybe it's two or three mood boards, and we're looking to get a read on the concepts, like what kind of food or what kind of price point or what kind of feeling does this evoke for you? So the first thing I want to know is where are we in the process? Are we at the very beginning stages, like the what should we build? Or are are we heading in the right direction phase? And if the restaurant has already launched and we're looking to then, you know, many restaurants have pivoted because of COVID, you know, maybe we're looking to understand um, how might we pivot now, you know, to meet the needs of today. Like what's changed? Has our customer base changed? Has their desire changed? Has their food needs changed or food prep? You know, you are fairly new to digital entrepreneurship. You've just launched Curiosity Tank, I guess, within the last couple of years. So you essentially have built a brand, significant brand from scratch recently. 
And you, you've come from a very long, you know, storied career as a branding person. And so what was it like kind of building your own consultancy from scratch? How did you go about doing that? Oh, um, I've had a sordid past. Well, this was my second <laughs> consultancy. <laughs> okay. All right. My second consultancy. So I had um, already, the, my first 10 years, I was operating under Robson Consulting. With Curiosity Tank, um, a couple of things fell into place. Um, first, a big first for me where I had developed products and services for the big guys for years, but I had never developed something and sold it myself. Mm-hmm. That what I had sold my consulting services, but I'd never sold a widget. I'd never sold a product. That was like a course or something like that, or exactly, right. exactly a, a, a course, a roll of scotch tape. I mean, anything like that. I'd only sold services. It became clear earlier on when I was doing the research and learning about the education space and considering offering my own courses that credibility was really paramount. People wanted to purchase and learn from a trusted resource and building that credibility. um, If I was going to do what I was going to play the long game. So I went kind of through this mind mapping exercise of how could I build that credibility and what's the, what's the best way, not the fastest way to go about it, but what's the best way to go about that. And then there was naming it. So Ronson consulting doesn't have, any sort of meaning to anyone other than my individual clients. But if I was going to sell something at, you know, scale, I needed it to have a catchier name and I wanted the name to be um, more closely related to what I was selling, which, which was basically curious. It is basically curiosity with rigor. So the name curiosity tank came about um, because people used to ask me and people still ask me all the time, why do you do what you do? You know, what do you love about it? And my standard response for years, and it still is today, is because it it fills my curiosity tank mm. and I get to help other people in the process. So that's how the name came about. You worked with me, you beautiful talent minded you, <laughs> on identity and helped me realize that vision and bring it to life, which was outstanding. When we build a business, we build kind of a, a brand ecosystem, right? We have certain digital real estate we have to show up on. I know that you develop content, you're developing courses. What were the kind of the first things you did in terms of building your your digital footprint and your brand ecosystem? And, and how have you built that out? I started to use LinkedIn a lot. I started to post on LinkedIn I started to respond to other people's posts and comments. Then um, as I was getting the idea for the, the, and when the name came to be, I built out the website and then I pre-sold the first three courses. So that's what's called an MVP, a minimum viable product. So um, I had already conducted a tremendous amount of research in terms of what the topics would be and um, how I would approach them and what students were really struggling with. Um, and I crafted an outline for each course and then I pre-sold the course to confirm product market fit is what we call it in the industry. I think I seem to remember on LinkedIn, well, for people listening, Michelle and I are part of the same peer mastermind group and have been for a while. So I, I know a little bit more about our business than your typical podcast interviewer. <laughs> but, um, 
I, I know that you also, I, I think you p- did some posts on LinkedIn that were asking questions and you got a lot of feedback from other people who were either user researchers or wanted to be user researchers. D- is, did you do that in order to get feedback basically for your MVP? Um, no, not at that point. Um, I tend to be a very inclusive, collaborative person as it is. And what I started to, I think what you might be thinking of it, what I started to post about were what I refer to as conversations from the classroom. Mm. So questions my students would ask me, I would then write about. If they're asking me these questions and I'm hearing these questions over and over, other people are probably curious about this. Um, so that's where those, those beginning questions came. And then as more people started to see my content, they would just say to me like, wow, like that slide right there, like that's a great post. I never thought about taking notes like that in an interview session before. I didn't even know that that was a thing. And because you're so close to your own expertise, you can't always see it. And then I started to randomly kind of take take slides or course content from my classes and then and then post those and then ask for feedback and say, what am I missing? And then the community would weigh in. And then what am I then what am I missing? And then also if if my students needed something, like um, I have a student who's looking to do a research study on in telehealth and wearable technologies. Who do I know in my network that could answer a few questions for this student. So I, then I started to ask for things on behalf of the students and then people really want to help. Right. Mm. And different tactics, you know, like that is, it was a lot of trial and error. What works for me is long format posts with visuals. Um, and that, that kind of sticks for me. Now, chances are many of you listening might have first come across me via my YouTube channel. Building my presence on YouTube has done more to build my personal brand than any other platform. So I want to share with you the one resource that was critical in growing my channel. It's a YouTube plugin called TubeBuddy. TubeBuddy is a freemium browser extension that you use to manage and optimize your YouTube channel videos. It saves a massive amount of time doing the mundane tasks like adding cards, in managing your video descriptions. But it also provides incredible value through its video analytics, showing you data about your competitors' videos that's absolutely invisible without it. It also helps with adding metadata to your videos so they show up better in search. If you want to take your YouTube work to the next level, you have to get TubeBuddy. You can support this podcast by signing up through our affiliate link. Just go to TubeBuddy.com slash Philip Van Dusen. It's easy to remember. Just type in TubeBuddy.com slash Philip Van Dusen to check it out. By adding TubeBuddy to your video workflow, I guarantee you your channel will grow much, much faster. Just go to TubeBuddy.com slash Philip Van Dusen and sign up for TubeBuddy today. I know that you, number one, have been recognized by LinkedIn and in 2020 as a major influencer. I don't know exactly what the, the title they bestowed on you, but um, talk about that a little bit. A totally funny story. So LinkedIn has like their version of the Emmys uh, or the Oscars every year where they select 10 people globally in 10 different categories around the world. Um, and they selected me. They honored me with a top voice um, award in in November uh, in the technology category, which is 
I mean, no one could have been more surprised than me. I, I think you know the story. They reached out to me and I didn't even respond because I thought it was spam. <laughs> <laughs> it occurred to me that, that this would actually be real. Um, but I was, you know, just so humbled and delighted. Um, and they really, I mean, understanding their process, it's nothing you can apply for. It's nothing you get nominated for. They, they go through, they have very, very um, interesting and, and rigorous algorithms that go through and analyze people's behavior first on, on the platform to first assess for reach and engagement. Mm-hmm. And then they compile a short list of, I don't know how many thousands of people. And then they go through rounds of qualitative reviews of that actual content. How meaningful is it? How timely is it? Um, how important is it to, um, whatever the category, what sort of influence subscriber growth, follower growth and, and things like that. Well, I have to say, under, as a user researcher, understanding the rigor that LinkedIn went through in order to get to you must feel even better. I, I, like, I, I was like, really? <laughs> um, oh, wait, and, and I remember the story you told in our mastermind about, about they were warning you about blowing up. Talk about that. Yeah, they um, they were um, very human. Um, I spoke with two or three editors there, and they said, um, uh, first they reached out and they said, you know, please answer these ten questions or whatever, which were very basic questions like what motivates you to post on LinkedIn or things like that. Um, and I, you know, that's what I didn't fill out because I thought it was spam. spam. <laughs> and then they followed up and were like, uh, did you get this? This is a big deal. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And then they said that, you know, they would follow up in, you know, two or three weeks with the results. And I never really gave it until my mom. I was like, wouldn't that be great? And never really gave another thought. And then two or three weeks later, I got an email and said, you're it. And I was like, I'm in what? What? Is this for California? <laughs> they were like, no, globally. Wow. And they said, look, here's a list of, you know, five things we strongly suggest that you do. It will be announced, you know, I don't know, seven days or 10 days or whatever. And they had me suggested I um, allow people one-click follows versus going through connection requests. I clean up whatever I want to promote or sell, get my story straight, make sure that... You <laughs> get know, your my- story straight, Michelle. <laughs> Or like, like what, but be prepared for. Yeah. Like what are you going to sell for some traffic? Yeah. Be prepared for, for traffic in in whatever, you know, ways that is. And, um, and I did all that. I did all that. It was, you know, a week of not sleeping. Um, but it it was, it was so, it was so worth it. It was just, um, an unbelievable recognition and platform to communicate. And, and I, I remember I went back to them and I just said, I'm, I'm so grateful. I, I, I just have one question. I'm just, I'm just dying to know, why did you put me in the technology category and not the design category, which was, is a new category in 2020? Mm. And they said that they actually debated that for a couple of weeks or whatever. And in the end, they felt that more designers were aware of what customer and user research was than the general technology category. And they felt that I would have more of an impact if I was in the technology category because it would be a newer, fresher voice with um, 
newer, fresher information. And, and I just, again, I was just taken with how thoughtful they really were in not only the selections, but how they placed the selections and how they prepared you and everything it was really quite a gift. To tell you the truth, actually, I'm not really surprised by that, but that's mostly because I know that most of your big clients are technology companies, right? So, I mean, your some of your biggest consulting clients and and uh, you know enterprise level um, engagements are with technology companies. So yeah. it sounds like it. It sounds like user research is getting traction in that area. So it's interesting. Yeah, it, it, it really is. It's um, And as a result, my following on LinkedIn, by the way, if anyone's not connected with me on LinkedIn, please connect with me. Now you have to, right? You have to see what, what's, what all this stuff's about. Um, but has grown to include many more developers, many more engineers, mm. many more people in the artificial intelligence space, the um, virtual reality space. Um, so they were right. I mean, they must really track this stuff. Um, that was, that was, the whole thing was just extremely, is, you know, extremely humbling and, and thoughtful. I can continue to be taken with how thoughtful. So you, what other channels are you on? I mean, you're on LinkedIn, obviously killing it on LinkedIn. Um, you've done some podcast interviews. Um, do you, show up on Twitter or Facebook or are there other, any other Instagram, any other channels that you're leveraging at all? Or are you like myopically focused? Um, I have a tough time keeping up with LinkedIn to tell you the truth. Um, I would like, I, I comment here and there on a Facebook um, post or two, but I really am focused on LinkedIn um, until I can figure out how to, to scale that in a, in a meaningful way. And I haven't, I haven't, I haven't focused on that yet. I've been focused on scaling the the classes and um, things like that. So not yet would be my response, but I love doing podcasts and I love doing YouTubes and lives and radio. And I love being live with people. That's, that's my love to be live. One of the things in terms of people building personal brands or businesses or freelance agencies of their own, but then also what's the split between the client work you do, the education work you do, the personal marketing and content development that you do? Um, how do you split your time? And you also do teaching, right? You sell courses now. So how do you split out your time across all of those different verticals? Very carefully. <laughs> Um, I am, um, well, I should, in all fairness, everything kind of feeds each other, right? Because the more I teach, the better practitioner I become, the more I practice, the better teacher I become, the more I teach, the more content I develop, the more content, the more I'm able to market, the more I'm able to market, the, the more, so it's, it's all in like the same ego. I think of it is all the same. Um, now, like in terms of revenue, where does that come from? And that I analyze, you know, a little differently, but in terms of my time, it's probably 50% is focused on maybe actually, let's say this 40% is focused on, um, consulting 40% is focused on teaching and 10% on developing content in my newsletter. 
Um, that's actually, that's the other channel would be my newsletter and, um, on LinkedIn. Her, her newsletter is awesome, by the way. So we'll have a link in that in the show notes. So you should definitely subscribe. And up until uh, recently, I think you were doing all of this yourself, right? So have you been building, now you've been building a team more, where was that, where was that junction point where you said, I can't do this by myself anymore. And then how did you go about getting some help? Um, well, I've always had people help along the way. It was more about regular help. Um, so I have a woman that helps me with my website. Um, she's great. Now I have someone that helps me with more of the design and the administrative stuff. She's great. I just transitioned my series to a learning platform and I have someone else helping me with all of the backend stuff on that. Um, I've had a, a bookkeeper for years um, so I have someone that helps with all of that. And I have someone that I work with on writing here and there. It's a little bit more sporadic. Mm. Um, but just two weeks ago, I committed to working with a business coach um, to help me actually um, map out my own roadmap and figure out how I can scale more efficiently and effectively. And, and scaling for me isn't just reaching new clients and courses and revenue. It's about how I can how I can scale my support system so that I can focus more on my zone of genius and my passion areas, mm-hmm. which I can tell you is definitely not bookkeeping. <laughs> Even as an SVP of a major global bank, you're not like into bookkeeping? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's certain, I, I, you know, everybody's got their, their zone of genius, right? Everybody has like their zone where they want to spend, you know, more time in and that can't be outsourced. So I would like to spend more of my time in that space and figure out how I can scale more of the support staff in the future. So what is one of the biggest difficulties that you've had to overcome? I mean, you've had some incredible successes and have, have an, you know, a pretty remarkable career, but have there been any places where you've kind of hit a wall or where you really had to struggle to kind of get over? When I went back to school at CCA, um, that was kind of a struggle. And that was after you were an SVP at at. Wells Fargo and these major banks, you went back to school. I went back to school. I just wasn't waking up in the middle of the night with crazy ideas anymore. Mm. I wasn't as excited. And I like to say, it wasn't like I was going to make a wholesale career change, but I wanted a different flavor. I knew I was going to stay in the bakery, but if I was a donut, like I wanted to try the eclairs, I wanted to try the... You're making me hungry. And and that was a pretty pivotal point, you know, to, you, you reach this success and you, you, you have all the credentials and the big title and the big salary. And I just had to be really honest with myself. You know what? I'm just not as excited about this as, Mm. as I used to be. And I want to find that spark again. I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to explore a little bit and see if I can find it a new spark and something new to chew on and bite on. And that's exactly what I did and how I fell literally down that rabbit hole in design and user research. That's awesome. So I I tie up all of my interviews with the same question. And so do you have a personal manifesto or some sort of a mantra that you try to live your life by? I do. And I sign all of my newsletters the same way. And it's stay curious. I truly believe that if each and every one of us could improve our curiosity skills, 
and be more curious and not ask just what, but how and why we'll be such better people. We'll be so much more empathetic. We'll have Mm. such a greater understanding about ourselves and the people in the world around us. So mine would be stay curious. And I think the world needs a little empathy right now. You know, a lot of friction going on. So empathy is a, is, would be a big plus to improve that. So where can people find you, Michelle? Where's the best place to connect with you? I definitely subscribe to our newsletter. The link will be in the show notes, but where, what's the best place to connect? Um, come learn more about me and uh, my curiosity and my workshops um, and the newsletter at curiositytank.com and hit me up for connection requests on LinkedIn. I would love to see you there and make sure you let me know that you heard about me um, on this um, podcast and I would love to learn more about you. Maybe tell me what inspired you or something that really resonated or let me know if you have a question. I love questions. See, she's <laughs> curious to the very end. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and speaking to us at the Brand Design Masters podcast, Michelle. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. If you'd like to help support the Brand Design Masters podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you want to stay up to date on all our content, products, courses, and live video shows, head over to philipvandusen.com slash muse and sign up for the Brand Muse newsletter. That's where we share all the latest news, resources, articles, books, and videos that we recommend to help you build and improve your creative practice, personal brand, and business. That's philipvandusen.com slash muse, M-U-S-E. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.